Our second scripture passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there is a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Dear Lord, give us the same sort of glee running to you that these children just exhibited as they left us. Thank you again that we have the opportunity during Advent to reflect on our need for you and then to be overwhelmed by the fact that you came to us in that need. Open up your words to us as we open our lives to you. You know the men and women and children who sit here. You know the needs they have, what they need to hear. You guide and direct us that they may hear it and leave knowing you have drawn them more closely to you. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. I was here last week. It's great to be here. This one was on the books for a while, being here this morning. So I've had the privilege of being here a lot, but never before have I been here when you've just laid gifts at my feet. So I just want to say, it's really too much. You didn't have to do that. Um, I want to ask you a question this morning that will kind of guide our time. I want you to ask, what, whose foreground do you want to live in? Okay, whose foreground do you want to live in? This Christmas... As a family, um, we are reading through every couple of days some of the letters from Father Christmas that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote for his children. Many of you probably know that Tolkien wrote a letter from St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, Santa Claus every Christmas to his children that described the gifts. 
and they've put them together in a, a book. Several different publishers have them, and you can read through. Now, I was hoping, because I'm a Tolkien fan and have read Lord of the Rings, like many of you, that these were actually kind of long stories. Turns out they're really letters, like one, two-page letters from Father Christmas. But they're still great, and part of the greatness is, is inhabited by the fact that Tolkien not only wrote them, but he illustrated them. So when you see the illustrations, one of which is a slide, if you could put up now, Joe, that'd be great. You'll see that the illustrations carry almost as much skill as some of the writing Tolkien does. Clearly, this guy is a very gifted person. And the primary characters in each of the letters is Father Christmas, or our Father Christmas and the, the great North Polar Bear. And even in the letters, there's a, a back and forth where Father Christmas is describing the typical accident that the great North Polar Bear caused that year in the North Pole and what he had to do to fix it. And then the North Polar Bear has his own lines inserted in between Father Christmas's paragraphs. And in the drawings, you'll see that, like this is a good example, there's a, a, a dance back and forth between foreground and background. Tolkien is sometimes drawing a big event up top, but then if you don't, if you don't look closely below, you'll miss Father Christmas down below. One of the stories, the North Polar Bear hurts himself. And so there's this great description, illustration up above. But then here's the polar bear, very small down below in the foreground with a little red dot for his blood from his head where he fell. So there's always this back and forth between foreground and background and what Tolkien's doing. Advent is a bit of a reminder for us of what our foreground really is. It's a reminder of God breaking into our foreground of history. Literally erupting, I-R-R-U-P-T, erupting into our life and into our world by sending his son to save us. There's a new kingdom. All bets are off. All rules are changed. Death will be defeated. And the decay of our lives as a result of being apart from God is removed. The intent during Advent is for us to learn what it means to wait as we straddle this unique place of a Messiah who's come in the first advent, that will come again in the second advent. And this, this morning we're going to look at two characters that might be easy to miss, who are seemingly in the background of the painting of history, but in the passage you heard this morning from Luke 2, are pulled into the foreground of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus comes to earth. If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke 2. If not, we're going to put up another painting by Rembrandt that describes the scene that was read to you this morning. This again is Luke 2, 25 to 38. It's when Jesus is being brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord. What's going on in this passage? Last week we looked at Luke 3 and we highlighted there that Luke is a gospel writer who focuses and helps us understand that God's foreground and our foregrounds are often different. If you remember, what he does in Luke 3 is he starts off with the big picture of Rome. I walked across the stage then to show kind of, here's Caesar, Tiberius, and then here's Pontius Pilate, and then here's the local government leaders, these sons of Herod the Great, and then here's Annas and Caiaphas, the rulers of the temple. And that's what looked like history's foreground, what was really important in Luke 3. And here in Luke 2, he does kind of the same thing. He's been doing that throughout the chapters. He started, well, there's this Caesar named Augustus, and he's having a, a census. And that sounds pretty important, sounds kind of like a very Roman thing to count and organize. It looks like that's really what matters. Again, front page news is the census. But then again, Luke is reminding us that's not all that's happening, that in fact the kingdom of heaven's foreground looks different. And so we've been hearing in Luke 1 and 2 so far about like a woman, an old woman who cannot bear children getting pregnant. And we've been hearing about a teenage girl 
who gets pregnant, and a carpenter in a small city. And John the Baptist, again, we heard last week in John 3. So Luke is continually reminding us, stretching our vision to see what we really think is important. What's the foreground of your and my life? And what's the foreground of the kingdom of heaven look like? In chapter 2, the story of this birth of the baby, the the baby's now here, this promised Messiah, begins not in big trumpets and fanfare. It begins with these shepherds out in a field, all by themselves, them and their sheep, and the sky's opening up with an angel choir and trumpets and music there. It doesn't begin in Jerusalem or in Rome or Alexandria. It begins in this grassy field with stinky sheep. Now here we move in our paragraph 40 days later to a different background and foreground. We have Mary and Joseph, these kind of unassuming background people, just a man and a woman and their baby, coming to present their offering to the temple. And if you had a baby in, in Israel, there were three ceremonies you had to perform. First, there was circumcision if it was a boy at eight days. Then there was purification for the newborn, which is supposed to happen no sooner than 31 days after the birth of the child. And then there's purification after childbirth, and that's what's happening here. And during that ceremony, you're supposed to bring an offering that we read they bring. Their offering is not very lavish. It's a simple, humble, foreground people kind of offering. And they're coming into the temple to offer this. And on that day in the temple, this would not have looked like kingdom of heaven foreground news. This was not that big a deal. This is not Augustus. This is not Annas and Caiaphas walking through the temple grounds. This is just simple people. You can imagine a bit their uncomfortability. Maybe they felt like, I, we're sick of the questions about how long have you been married? Oh, but wait, you have a baby. Wait, you've been married only four months, five months, six months? But here, this is a 10-month event. You have a baby. You can imagine if you were them, you might have wanted to be on the background as you came to obey the Lord. You didn't really want people to notice what was going on. You've had these questions for months. So Rembrandt does such a nice job. Here's the temple in the background, all the real action. Because suddenly someone steps into the foreground. Suddenly someone who gets heaven's foreground comes to this young couple, this man, Simeon. We hear he's a righteous man. He's a devout man. This is not a time in Israel where there are many devout people, so that means something. Here's this righteous and devout man in a dark time in Israel. And he has literally been waiting for this. God promised to him, you will see the Messiah before you die. So he has been waiting to see this happen. He's in tune with God's spirit. We hear three different times in this short paragraph. Verse 25, verse 26, verse 27 that he's someone who listens to the Spirit and responds. And that day, the Spirit had told him, go to the temple and wait, because it's gonna happen. You're gonna meet the Messiah. So he doesn't need trumpets. He doesn't need Roman soldiers. He hears the Spirit, and he responds to the opportunity God gives him and moves to this child and moves to this couple that is seemingly, again, a background kind of couple. He sees Mary and Joseph and the baby, He steps into their lives and he says, my eyes have seen the salvation for Jews and Gentiles. He gets the whole picture. If you read through the gospels, you see people don't always get both. Remember we said last week that Luke is a writer who wants you to know this. Jesus is the salvation for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. But Luke writes two books, Luke and Acts, to make sure you and I get that. Simeon gets it like that. He understands what the Messiah means. 
He says these words, let me depart in peace, which is what we call the nunc dimittis. It's a part of the Book in Common Prayer and our liturgy, one of the canticles we sing in worship. He waited and he waited and he waited. And then he has this epiphanic moment, this epiphany. He sees God in the flesh. So first, we have Mary and Joseph. Second, we have Simeon. This is the kingdom of heaven's foreground. This is what's happening. And then we have another person, this woman, Anna, who's also in the painting. Can you put that back up, Joe? Sorry. You can just leave it up. But Anna's called a prophetess. There are only seven women in the entire Old Testament who are called prophetess. So that should get our attention. Well, she is big time. It's striking to know that not, you've had one witness, right, Simeon. How many witnesses in a Jewish court do you need to prove something? Two. So you have Simeon, a man, and Anna, a woman. What a subtle beauty that is. Proving, here in the temple court, here is the Son of God. The Spirit speaks to her. She's old. What do we hear about Anna? She's tall. She's a nice dresser. She's vegetarian. She likes Starbucks. No, what we hear is she's old. She's 84 years old. But we get a little nugget to that 84 years. She was married for seven years, and then her husband died. And now she's 84. So play with the math just a little bit. Let's say she got married at 20, which would have been kind of old to be married at that time. And she was married for seven years. So her husband died when she was 27. So if that, just on that math, she's been waiting and living in the fullness of God for 57 years as a widow. We don't know if she had kids. Maybe she had kids. It's predictable she did, but they're not mentioned in this short paragraph. Here's a woman living with that sorrow, her distinctiveness. She's a prophetess and she's a widow for 57 years. How does she spend her time? What does the passage tell us? It looks fairly inefficient, right? She worships and she fasts and prays. How many of you, if you went into work tomorrow, were like, look, I want to live with God. This is what I'm doing this week. I'm worshiping, I'm fasting and praying. Even Johnny and Corky this week are not going to just worship, fast, and pray. That's what she's doing. She's been listening and waiting and walking with God all this time. And she, too, is pulled into this foreground moment. It's predictable she looks odd in the temple. Don't you know she's probably, the kids probably say, that's that old lady prophetess. She's here every year. She's here all the time. But she's pulled in. She's not moved by Augustus. She's moved by this baby. She hears, she responds, she speaks, and she blesses Mary and Joseph. What are these two saints Say to us, how can they guide our own sense of what Advent means? What does their life of prayerful expectancy have for us? I just want to highlight three things this morning. First, Simeon and Anna teach us that people who live in the foreground of Jesus and his kingdom often look very different than people who look, live in the foreground of the world's foreground. People who live in Jesus' foreground just look different. These people were probably forgotten and unnoticed. Probably everybody in this paragraph was a, a tired-looking carpenter, his young mother bride, an old man, and a widow. These are blue-collar people. 
babies, women. Now, these aren't the only people pulled into Jesus' kingdom. Older people will be pulled in. Younger people will be pulled in. Children will be pulled in. White-collar people will be pulled in. But God's foreground does not exclude those that we often forget or exclude. And so Luke, like God, is retraining our eyes to see and beckon to you and me which foreground you and I want to live in. The goals of these people were different, to hear and respond to God. That is Simeon and Anna's goals. Their standards of success are different. The lenses at which they understood the world were different. One of the great ancestors of our Anglican faith was a bishop in Liverpool, England, named J.C. Ryle. Bishop Ryle says this about this paragraph. These men and women here described, Anna and Simeon, dwelling in the midst of a wicked city, walked by faith and not by sight. They were not carried away by the flood of worldliness, formality, and self-righteousness around them. They were not infected by the carnal expectations of a mere worldly Messiah. A political leader is going to come and a military leader is going to come and change. No. That's the view most Jews indulged. Instead, they lived in the faith of patriarchs and prophets, that the coming Redeemer would bring in holiness and righteousness, and that his principal victory would be over sin and the devil. Because if he came in and all he did was conquer Rome, Israel would still be a slave. But because he came in and conquered sin and the devil, he freed you too. Anna and Simeon understood that the solution to the world would only come from this baby and that he was worth waiting for both the first time and as we wait for his return. What concerned their hearts was different, and so first, they look different. Secondly, Simeon and Anna teach us that what makes us different is that we live in the foreground of God's kingdom waiting. We live in the foreground waiting. Indeed, this is a primary activity of living with the Lord. Why were they different? Because they waited. It's really impossible in this paragraph to get past their age. These are old people. And it implies something. Here we see just a scene of their lives. It's very brief. Probably didn't last more than 10 minutes. That's probably a stretch. And it's easy to miss all the buildup that went on underneath it. How many years did Simeon spend listening to the Holy Spirit such that he was that ready to respond that day? Because my guess is if we were all alive at that time, we'd all say to God, look, if the Messiah is coming today, I'd love to see him. Or this year. I'd love to see the baby Messiah. Please, God, let me know. Let me know. I'll be there. But that's not what Simeon had been doing. He'd been saying, Lord, I want you, and I will wait. And what if that day he was like, whew, I am too tired and too old to be going to the temple today. I've been listening to God for so long. I've had this unmet longing for so long. I've waited for God to do this for so long. I am done with that today. What if he'd done that? He would have missed it. This is a scene, and you miss the life. And think about Anna. Again, this is a woman who has experienced unmet longing. She was married for seven years. They both had to go through purifying and curing and deepening and waiting. They both had to decide that their true life would be found only in what God intended for them. Their true life will be found only in what God intended for them. 
which undoubtedly was different than what they wanted. You don't believe Anna on her wedding day thought, well, I hope that, you know, this is a seven-year marriage and then I'll wait for God and see the Messiah. She probably thought, well, if we're gonna see the Messiah, we'll do it together. And this waiting, of course, if you read your Bible, has a precedent, you know. Abraham had to wait for children. Israel had to wait in the wilderness. David had to wait to be king. The diaspora, Israel, when they're scattered in 587 BC, had to wait 70 years before they're brought back to Israel. Earlier in Luke, Elizabeth and Zechariah have waited decades to be parents. So it's a pretty good bet if you, if you jump into this story, this Advent story, that you and I are going to have to wait too. All our ancestors had to do this. Waiting is a core spirit-forming activity. Waiting for the first Advent coming of Jesus and waiting for the second Advent coming of Jesus. If you want depth and intimacy with God, you will be asked to wait. Which, of course, begs the question, why does God do that? And you get a window here in this scene. You're asked to wait because God wants to pull you into his foreground. He doesn't want you to miss opportunities like the baby Jesus coming in the temple. He's attuning your heart and my heart and your expectations and my expectations and your desires and my desires, your satisfactions and my satisfactions. He's attuning all those to his foreground, not ours or the world's. Because picture other people coming to the temple that day and what their foreground would have been. Maybe they'd seen this happening over here. But they probably, if you'd asked them to paint it, would have painted the temple and sacrifice. And, oh, there's this couple over here and some light came down on some baby. But hey, I went, I was there. I was at the temple and this cool stuff happened. And... But over here is the foreground God wants you to get in on. He wants to invite you into the eternal. For you and for Jew and for Gentile. And then third and lastly, how can Simeon and Anna help us? Not only do they show us that we need to wait, then they show us what we do when we wait. What do you do if you're being asked to wait? And clearly what they do is they lean into the Lord. They pray, they listen, they worship. They embrace and humble themselves to God's timetable. And that's what we're called to do. We pray and we listen and we worship. We celebrate the first advent and we preach the second advent. It's particularly striking how Anna has spent her time. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is a man named William Barclay. Barclay says this about Anna. She had known sorrow and had not grown bitter. She had known sorrow and had not grown bitter bitter. Now you know she could have written in that sorrow a book on the foreground of her experiences, don't you think? Maybe a bestseller. How God doesn't care. How God isn't here. How God isn't faithful. I tried God, but it didn't work. She could have written that book. No one could say to her, well, you just don't understand. You haven't undergone. You Christians don't know what pain is. No one could say that to her. But instead, she was old and had never ceased to hope and lean into the Lord. Again, she had known sorrow and had not grown bitter. She never ceased to worship. 
She never ceased to be in God's house with God's people, even though it must have been desperately hard sometimes. She came to worship with married couples. She came to worship with married couples and children for decades. She came and said, Lord, I want to be in your foreground, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Now, people like Simeon and Anna are rare, but there are actually categories for them in Israel at this time. This is William Barclay again. There were some people in Israel at that time who were known as the quiet in the land. The quiet in the land. They had no dreams of violence and of power and of armies with banners. They believed in a life of constant prayer and quiet watchfulness until God should come. All their lives they waited quietly and patiently upon God. Simeon was like that in prayer, in worship, in humble and faithful expectation. He was waiting for the day when God would comfort his people. And on behalf of those people, he was waiting and praying for them. He was the quiet in the land. Again, at a time in the land when the land is pretty broken and not thriving spiritually. What's another thing that's striking to me about Simeon here is what we don't hear. It does not say Simeon was a priest. And I think if he was a priest, we would know. Because if you read through the Gospels, when there's a priest, it says he was a priest. Maybe he's a retired teacher, doctor, bus driver, mechanic, lawyer, coach. But he had chosen whatever his vocation professionally to be quiet in the land. His foreground is his life with God. His foreground is his life with God. It fuels his waiting. And Anna never ceases to pray. She too is quiet in the land. She leans into the Lord. And I'm sure for both of them, these were very honest and desperate prayers sometimes. They have watched Israel be overrun by civilization after civilization. They've watched people be killed in the temple at this point by the Romans. They've watched their children be enslaved. They've watched what might look on history's foreground like God doesn't hear them. And being quiet in the land can look very inefficient and not very important. It's not a census. You can't put it in an annual plan. You can't say you hit it as a year-end goal. It doesn't look very important. It's background work. Eugene Peterson says that being quiet in the land is shadow work. It's the work nobody gets paid for and few notice but that makes a world of salvation. That nobody gets paid for and few notice, but that makes a world of salvation. But in Advent, what we're reminded of is that this type of activity is foreground activity for you and me. It is fundamental activity for you and me. And the beauty of Advent is it teaches us that God wants to be in that waiting with us. Because he doesn't just say, hey, you do this. I'm in heaven. I got a lot of things to do in heaven. I'll be there. Take it easy. Stop complaining. No, what he says, I know it's hard. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to move in to the neighborhood with you on the ground. I'm here in the flesh as a baby and then on the cross. So as you and I think about Advent, we have roughly 12 days left 
don't want to stress anybody out, but if you're shopping, 12 days. You and I live in a city that has a very clear sense of what we believe the foreground is. Frankly, we believe this city is the world's foreground, if we're honest, right? Many of us moved here because we felt called to be a part of that, to get in on it. Some of those ambitions probably holy, some of them probably less than holy. And we absolutely believe that men and women in this city who love Jesus should be working in every industry that is possible in Northern Virginia. But the question again I want to ask you is, like Simeon and Anna, what is your foreground? What tomorrow will be your foreground? This Advent, whose foreground do you want to be in on? Do you want to be in on those kind of moments like Simeon and Anna were, like the painting? Because remember, all are invited. A teenager's invited, a baby's invited, the old are invited, female and male are invited, mothers and widows are invited, barren or with lots of children you're invited. You only have to read the first couple chapters of Luke to see that. So if you want to get in on that, just a a, a humble suggestion for the next 12 days. What if you dedicated 10 minutes of those days to be the quiet in the land in Vienna? What if everybody here said for 10 minutes, I will be quiet before God and ask him to teach me what he wants me to pray for or to get in on? What if you did it early in the morning before you left the house? I think you could all do 10 minutes. I think I could even do 10 minutes. No technology. Might want to take a walk to do it. Predictably, if you've never done this before, your brain will be completely active the whole time and you'll be like, I can't be quiet at all. No, you can't. But what foreground do you want to be in on when you leave the house tomorrow? Because remember, what God needs still is Simeon's and Anna's. God still needs Simeon and Anna's as they are at the Vienna Inn tomorrow or as they are on the Metro tomorrow or if they're in here in high school tomorrow. God still needs people who are attuned to him and what he wants to do. Remember, Simeon got up and he could have missed it. He could be like, I am not being quiet in the land today. But God still needs you and me to be attuned and ready like Simeon and Anna were ready to burst into the foreground opportunities that he will give you and me this week. And if I'm too loud in the land, I will miss those. When I'm too loud, I have missed those. Because what we believe, the reason we remind ourselves about Advent, is that everyone you meet this week, everyone you meet this week, either is waiting for news of the first Advent or the second Advent. Everybody. And what we see from scripture is that God at this time often doesn't use trumpets from heaven. What he uses are people like you and me and Simeon and Anna. So again, whose foreground this week do you want to be in? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I don't want to miss the opportunities to be your foreground people this week myself. And I know that it's easy to create my own foreground, the to-do list in my head, the emails I need to send. Please keep my own ears and heart attuned to your spirit like Simeon this week. 
I pray that you would help us, this community, exit this building ready to be foreground, quiet in the land people this week. The people who need news of the first or second advent will hear it from us in some way, shape, or form. Thank you again for Simeon and Anna and them being attuned to you and help us be the same. In your holy name, amen. Thank you.